this movie, huh? I mean, look at it, right? It's so funny, so profound, so deep and moving. It just hits you right here with all the heart and the funny and the aching longing in our crappy, sinful lives that are bound to end tragically any minute now. But hey, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. And it makes you wonder, makes you want to scream, why? Just why? Why didn't Cher ever act this good again? Why wasn't The Godfather this funny? Or on the other hand, why didn't Super Mario Brothers have this kind of heart? And you scream and you rage and you throw tables over as that old crazy moon hangs in the sky looking at you, laughing maybe, until like a nervous parent who's no good kids finally come home, it slides below the horizon and somehow a new day has begun. (laughs) Wow, that was both an homage to 1987's Moonstruck and, I believe, Nick Cage's particular singular (laughs) acting style. Listen, he can't live forever, so I'm ready. Let's enjoy him while he's here. (laughs) You sent me an article this morning, uh, a fantastic interview that Nick Cage did with the New York Times Magazine, I guess, that's coming out this weekend. Yes. I actually really liked it. I thought it was insightful into the crazy process. And he was actually really able to articulate where it comes from. And it makes a crazy kind of sense. It doesn't sound like nonsense. You can follow it. The words make sense. And he has enough self-possession to know how crazy he sounds to the rest of the world. (laughs) And yet... He makes it seem normal to pursue a holy grail of real estate through Arthurian legend from... England to Rhode Island. And you're like, yeah, that's part of the acting process. See, they didn't cover that at my school. Or to buy a a Egyptian artifact from a tomb and carry it in your pocket so that only you know it's there when you begin filming some sort of action adventure tomb raiding movie. In acting, we say it's like having a comic secret. You know, a comic a little secret. something. Think like when you're taking your headshots, people are like, just think of something like you have oh, a little Oh, that gives you a little secret, glint in the eye. A little glint in the eye. Anyway, I'm Jason. I'm Chris. And we are full cast and crew, and we are talking today about the stunning, fantastic, holds up greater than ever today, <laughs> Moonstruck, Norman Jewison's film of a John Patrick Shanley screenplay, winner of Academy Awards for Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Screenplay. Chris, I think it's fair to say you're not a romantic. <laughs> what? Yeah, you're- Didn't you hear that opening? Don't you hear the sound, the scratch in my voice is from being up, you know, howling at the moon. I'm basing this on knowing you. <laughs> I don't, but, well, let me put it this way. I don't believe you're as susceptible to a rom-com as I am. Yes. That's is that a fair statement? Yes, that is fair. That is fair. So I don't know if you fell for the charms of this film or whether you view it with, you know, a arm's length distance. I fell for the charms, though there's so much else about it that the actual rom-com stuff just almost got pushed to the side because the supporting cast is so great. And there's so much else of it being a family movie. This woman's sort of opening up uh, and the farce element, the supporting cast is so great. And there's all this other stuff. And as a movie, it, it's amazing to me that because John Patrick Shanley is a playwright, that this is not an adaptation of a play. It, it plays like a play. It plays a lot like a play. For those who've been living under some kind of a rock or not having access to television or film since 1987, Moonstruck is a 1987 
American romantic comedy film directed, as I said, by Norman Jewison. It's about a widowed 37-year-old Italian-American woman played by Cher who falls in love with her fiancé's estranged, hot-tempered younger brother. The fiancé is brilliantly played by Danny Aiello in a performance he feared cost him rep in his old neighborhood, although it completely made his career. (laughs) So, Danny. One definitely takes care of the other, I think. He mentions this in uh, something that I read, which I think is very funny. He actually was concerned after he filmed the movie that he came across too wimpy. <laughs> and he was like, I was afraid to go back to the streets. Like, what were they going to think? He's like, well, you're a movie star. Yeah. I mean, what are they going to think? Is probably going to ask you for money. <laughs> and also, I think at one point he was like, you know, in real life, uh, she would have chosen She would have been me. She would have chosen me. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> kid yourself. You mentioned his throwaway line, or maybe it's not a throwaway line in your intro. Why didn't Cher ever act this good again? Do you think that? Do you think this is her greatest film performance? Yeah. You do? You know, looking back, you know, I think- Over for, Mask. Well, Mask is also before this. I guess it, what struck me was that this- not an Academy Award winning performance and one that's wonderful and one that's a lot further from her in real life than I think Mask is. If, you know, that's not to take it because I really, I was blown away by her in Mask. But um, after this, she just doesn't do that much acting. Yeah. If, if you look at her Wikipedia page, it's about as long as the Roman Empire's. Yes. Like she has packed a lot of living and a lot of careers into her mm-hmm. still going life. So the fact that she did not ever uh, did not act as much after this, this is probably one of the f- few times that I can say with confidence that she probably was like, you know what? I actually my music career does mean more to me. My politics does mean more to me like mm-hmm. this. Nothing until something that seemed as good as this would come along. She was like, "Eh, I don't need it. Be very hard to think that many scripts come across the transom as great as this one was. I mean, it is probably one of the greatest screenplays, I would say, in the history of cinema. And as does uh, Norman Jewison. He certainly said it was the, the best that he has ever read. It's both a work of writing like a play, like the genius of it is in the writing, even though in the film that we're looking at, there is plenty of genius in the acting, in the editing, in the music, in the cinematography, in the directing. But ultimately, the written word is where the magic of this film comes together. At the same time, Jewison talks about how because it was so play-like and the rhythm has to be right, the big scene at the end where all the family gathers around the kitchen table was almost blew the whole movie up. It was achieving the rhythm that the writing had on the page filmically presented a massive problem, which I thought was such an interesting thing to hear because you think it's a scene with seven people sitting around a kitchen table. What's so hard about that? But when you watch that scene, which man, watching that scene again, it is a master class in film editing and construction. It must have taken forever. He says it took forever. Nick Cage threw a chair on the set. No one could- in a certain way, it doesn't surprise me at all that Nick Cage threw a chair. He did that on Guarding Test, too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the character that he's playing, Ronnie, at that moment is very, very laid back. He you is. Know what I mean? And I think what you're saying is so right. Everything is so deft and works so well together. It's seamless. It does have that kind of play feeling. You don't feel mm-hmm. the camera choices. It just always is in the right place yes. to catch the gestures, the, the facial yes. expressions, the movement. Obviously, the big roles, Vincent Gardinia as Cher's father, Olympia Dukakis, as her mother, who, as we said, won an Academy Award. Cher herself. Yeah. Yes. God. She's a revelation, man. It's easy to say Nick Cage is a singular and unique film presence because he always is and has been. But there isn't anybody like Cher on screen. There isn't anybody whose face allows you in to something 
that is as warm and receptive as her soul seems to be. She says in the commentary track, which includes Shanley, Cher, and Norman Jewison talking, they weren't together. That's sort of a drawback to the commentary track for me. But in a way, they also tell their version of things. And then the way they edit it together, it's kind of useful because you can hear different perspectives on different things that happened while they were filming. It wasn't a troubled production by any stretch, but it wasn't anything anyone thought would ever really be anything. I read a few anecdotes about both Cher and Olympia Dukakis that at some point I was asking, like, you know, what do you, th- you think this movie's going to yeah. be good? And Cher literally gives a thumbs yes. down. I think that had less to do with saying that it wasn't going to be good, but more like, who's going to see this? Who's going to Who see cares? it? In some ways, going back to how great the script is, Norman Jewison was saying, he's like, when I got the script, there were all these coffee stains on it, which meant a lot of people had read it and a lot of people had passed. Shanley tells the story that this was a spec script. He just wrote it himself. No one asked him. I think he was probably 30 at the time. He sent it off. I think it got to Norman Jewison's two producing partners. And one of them passed immediately and said it was the worst thing he'd ever read. And the other one was like, this is the best thing I've ever read. So they agreed to do it. Which in some ways doesn't, looking back, you know, you see it and you see how well it turned out. Of Mm -hmm. course, you think like, how could anybody not get it? And yet at the same time, I can see... Because to describe it, it does sound like pretty conventional and just sure. sort of another. It's another uh, rom-com. Sort of, not just another rom-com, but another like ethnic. St- oh, look, it's got the crazy family. And like, it just seems. It's got small. the mom from Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and dialogue. She was also. And dialogue. The dialogue coach for the film. Julie Bovasso. Cher in the beginning uh, is kind of brilliantly and greatly unfancy, unshare like She's wearing kind of a frumpy coat. She's schlepping around to her accounting clients in the neighborhood. And as such, we're introduced to someone who's very accepting of her place in life as a 37-year-old unmarried woman with a fiance who she doesn't love, but she understands she'll marry him. This is her place in the world. This is her place in the world. She's had bad luck. The first wedding, just to fill in for the listeners who, for whatever strange reason, might not have seen this, she was married. I think, what, two years later, her husband died? Her husband was hit by a bus hit and died. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she blames it on many things, that the that they didn't have a big enough yes. wedding, not a big enough reception, all sorts right. of, which she lumps, under, uh, lumps mm-hmm. under bad luck. And so she's like, well, so this is my, there, there's not a sense of I am dissatisfied, I'm going to change it. It's like, nope, this is simply how it is. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to make the best of the, the yeah. life that I'm given. I definitely also think this is Danny Aiello's funniest and most nuanced screen performance in the limited stuff that he has to do and embodies this character so wonderfully. This is a little bit of his proposal, which Cher herself directs. What's the matter with you? My scalp is not getting enough blood sometimes. Have some dessert. No, I shouldn't. Will you marry me? What? Huh? Will you marry me? Well, we'll take the card away. Very good, Mr. Moreno. Are you proposing marriage to me? Yes. All right. You know I was married and that my husband died, but what you don't know is I think he and I had bad luck. What do you mean? Well, we got married at the city hall, and I I think it gave bad luck the whole marriage. I, I don't understand. Right from the start, we didn't do it right, okay? Could you kneel down? On the floor? Yeah, on the floor. This is a good suit. I know that. I helped you pick it out. It came with two pairs of pants. You know, Johnny, it's for luck. I mean, a man proposes marriage to a woman, he should kneel down. (laughs) 
She's got him on his knees. He's ruining his suit. Is that man praying? So. Where's what? the ring? The ring. A ring. That's right. I would have sprung for the ring if it was me. Kabish. You could use your pinky ring. I like this ring. You propose marriage to a woman, you should offer her a ring of engagement. Loretta. Loretta Castorini Clark. On my knees, in front of all of these people. Will you marry me? Yes, Johnny. Yes, John Anthony Camareri, I will marry you. I will be your wife. God, they're so good. The timing, the script, yeah, the performances, it's a rare treat to watch everything happening at the level that this movie is executed at. And as you said, share. <clears throat> it's amazing. <laughs> Chris is choked up. He's tr- he's tearing up I am tear- at the magnificence <laughs> at the magnific- of Cher. Because, you know, the the lines that she has in that are not so... It's the rhythm of the dialogue and the mm-hmm. simplicity of the words. But she brings so much to it. I don't know that I had ever thought about what a wonderful actress she is. Looking at this and looking how different it is from her as a human being and from what mm-hmm. her life has been like, there's such an openness and a generosity. And she just is so available and mm-hmm. um it's and humble just, and humble you know which is contrary to what you think of when you think of share in the bob yeah. mackie beaded gowns and the center of attention and when you also think how unlikely she really was to be cast in this role you know she's not italian she's armenian right. uh she told norman jewison like i don't know how to do the accent and she also said i'm difficult and says this in the commentary track, actresses specifically being branded as quote unquote difficult. Yeah. When I think what that means in shorthand is she cares and she's going to take the time to be prepared and to have thought about what she's doing. Now, that sounds like you should be happy to have that as a director. Right. And I think Norman Jewison was very happy to have that as a director. He says something really interesting about Nick Cage, which I think also works in terms of what Cher brings. He said, Cage was totally secure in his acting on the set. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about it, the caricature of Nick Cage, so over the top. But imagine if he was that neurotic and insecure in what he was doing. That's a whole other thing to have to deal with. Yes. When he's very confident that he's doing the right thing, it's probably much easier to be around that and to deal with it. Right. You may not like it. You may have to figure out how to dial it down usually. You can't imagine you have to dial it up, but maybe you do. But share too, the intelligence of her performance, just the unique presence. I couldn't get over her presence on the screen, whether it's this, whether it's Mask. She said that Mask is also very much not her personality. She doesn't do drugs. She's not Mm -hmm. a big drinker. She's not a biker. In the same way, she likes the pre-makeover version of herself in this film better than the share, I guess, audiences in 1987 were expecting and got after the turn where she goes to the Cinderella beauty parlor and gets made up like Cher. Also, as a rom-com, I kept thinking how tilted on its head everything is. She's not waiting for a guy to save her in her life. Mm -hmm. Everything that she does in the movie and the way that the relationship between her and Nick Cage unfolds is so different from what we're usually handed, even though it follows follows some predictable rom-com narratives. It's her security in herself. 
as the original character that we meet and the way she's just stage directing Johnny's proposal. There are rules that she thinks need yeah. to be followed. Like, it's funny because, you know, in some ways she is resigned as mm-hmm. a woman of her age who's had some disappointments. And yet she is not so resigned as to not have that kind of agency. Like yes. she still thinks, listen, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right to take control of of not only him, but dealing with her family. She hasn't given up uh, control of her life, even though she is a very humble person. And yet there's a I don't know if you'd call it a steeliness or just sort mm-hmm. of a strength at the center of it, past which nothing can go. And Cher, as an artist, part of the reason perhaps that she does so well with this character, like she's one of those artists, I think, kind of like David Bowie, who was always trying new mm-hmm. things. When reading a little bit about her career, she was talking at one point when she was mm-hmm. still with Sonny and Cher and the music tastes were changing mm-hmm. and they started looking pretty unhip. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, not in a blame way, she's like, you know, if it were up to me, I would have wanted to kind of change with the times. Yeah. But Sonny had a different aesthetic that he wanted to stay with. And then when she was a solo uh, act, she would change and try new things and go from being the folk person mm-hmm. she was in Sunny and Cher to a disco queen to yeah. later uh, whatever you would describe the do you believe in love pop diva era. Sure. As well as going from acting to mm-hmm. to being just a musician. She just seems to follow her own compass, mm-hmm. which that kind of confidence that she has probably does make her and Nick Cage easier to deal with because they're uh, not searching. Mm -hmm. They're making strong choices. You know, they didn't want Nick Cage for the movie. It was really Cher who said, either he's in the movie or I'm not doing the movie. And as she describes, there was a two-week standoff after she issued that ultimatum, which she didn't issue lightly. They asked her, would you be willing to do a screen test with both Nick Cage and another actor? And I was thinking about this as I was watching her with Nick Cage specifically. You know, it's very hard to hold the screen with Cher. And in this movie, in a similar way, going back to the National Lampoon vacation episode, which we released, and we were talking a little bit about one of the ways in which that movie works is because Chevy's not the smartest guy on the screen. And because there's that little tweak to his persona, you don't get a lot of the things that cause Chevy to go over the top of of his own movie in a movie like Fletch. With Cher and Nick Cage... Not only can he hold the screen with her, but he's so different from her that there's an incredible chemistry and tension between them. Shanley says she did a screen test with Nick or Nikki, as she call, as everyone calls him, which I like. So she did a screen test with Nikki and the other guy. And Shanley goes, the other guy just got blown off. the. He was like not even existent on the screen. Huh. Cher just dominated him. And not because she was trying to. She's right. trying to give him the chance that the studio wanted. He just couldn't hold it with her. Yeah. Whereas Cage is so... It's one of those cage performances where he's making some really bold acting choices. Yeah. But they actually do work in service of the film and whether I never heard anything where Jewison said he had to tone him down. He had to talk him out of doing anything particularly stupid. Well, stupid or not stupid. One thing that I did read about a a strong choice, which was abandoned. Nikki said himself that he wanted to speak like uh, Jean Marais in Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) And then he, he quote, the quote specifically says, he had that accent and his voice was very gravelly. And I thought of my character in Moonstruck like a wolf who spoke with a growl, Cage said. And so I was <laughs> talking like that in the movie and, got, and I got a call from the director, Norman Juice, and he said, Nicholas, the dailies aren't working. And then I started hearing names of other actors and I thought <laughs> I was going to get fired. I had to quickly drop the Jean Marais. Jewish, into his credit, letting the actor kind of try, try this and yes. go there and then saying to him, hey, look, in the dailies, it's not working. Yeah. 
And probably floating a few other names around. Like, so that <laughs> doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. So the screenplay, John Patrick Shanley, I guess, better known as a playwright. Yes. Certainly Doubt, I think, is probably his biggest theatrical success, which then became a movie, which yeah. he directed. And which, then it also became an opera. He did the libretto right. for an opera of it. So he's really milking that. Maybe this is a good time to announce the opera version of Full Cast and Crew <laughs> that you and I will be starring in at the Met. Uh, the screenplay was originally called The Bride and the Wolf. Then the script got circulated that had moon glow on it, and Shanley saw that and thought it was way too soft. To go to The Bride of the Wolf, I think they were saying one of the reasons why they didn't want to use it is it does, and <laughs> they're right, it does make it sound like a horror film. Audiences would be confused. And uh, the reason why it's called The Bride and the Wolf is during what ends up becoming a courtship, they talk about their different places in life. And he describes himself as being like a wounded wolf because he has lost his hand. Mm -hmm. And she, like a bride who who is going to marry somebody that she doesn't actually love. Here's a little of the here's a little of the scene you're talking about. You tell me the story and, and you act like you know what it means. But I can see what the true story is and you can't. The woman didn't leave you, okay? You can't see what you are, and I see everything. You're a wolf. I'm a wolf? Yeah. You're, the, the big part of you has, has no words, and uh, it's a wolf. You know, that woman was a trap for you. She caught you, and you couldn't get away, so you, you chewed off your own foot. That was the price you had to pay for your freedom. You know, Johnny had nothing to do with it. You did what you had to do between you and you, and now... Now you're afraid because you know the big part of you is a wolf that has the courage to bite off its own hand to save itself from the trap of the wrong love. That's why there's been no woman since that wrong woman, okay? You're scared to death of what the wolf will do if you try and make that mistake again. What are you doing? I'm telling you your life. Stop it. No. Why are you marrying Johnny? He's a fool. Because I have no luck. He, he made me look the wrong way and I cut off my hand. He could make you look the wrong way. You could lose your whole head. I'm looking where I have to to become a bride. A bride without a head. A wolf without a foot. So good. So good. You know, sooner or later, we'll get the VR down pat and you'll be able to watch as you listen. But she is amazing in that scene. She Incredible. so good. And he, you know, we were talking a little bit about Nick Cage. He is also, he is great in this. He is great. And a big part of it is he is such a nut. And this, the script and his character, you know, uh, there's the scene where she first meets him and he goes on this long monologue about how he's going to kill himself. Where's my wedding? Chrissy, over by the wall, bring me the big knife. No, Ronnie. Bring me the big knife. I'm going to cut my throat. Maybe I should come back another time. No, I want you to see this. I want you to watch me kill myself so you can tell my brother Johnny on his wedding day, okay? Chrissy, bring me the big knife! I tell you, I won't do it! Bring me the big knife! Bring me the big knife! The girl who's supposed to bring the big knife has a crush on him, which she says at the end, she's like, I'm not gonna bring you the big knife. It's, It's so funny, but it's also, it's so melodramatic. And it's not played for irony per se, but there is enough of an understanding of that melodrama. Mm hmm that it's not completely uh, sincere either. And it's mm-hmm. it's such a hard balance. And he, I mean, if anybody can do that, it, it's sort of him. And both that scene and this as well, it's a little bit overdone, but they really give themselves over to the strength and the fullness of those feelings. Cage's character, there's a vendetta between the brothers because, <laughs> because Johnny came into Camerary Brothers Bakery and requested some bread and distracted Ronnie and Ronnie sliced his hand off in the meat slicer. So he Which wears a wooden I, hand. I 
I love it. I remember when I first saw it, and they were like, that's it? Like, that's got nothing to do with, <laughs> with Johnny. Uh, I want to play a little piece of this commentary track because one of the great things about this movie is the sort of symbiosis between John Patrick Shanley and Norman Jewison, who certainly was a far more experienced film person yeah. than John Patrick Shanley was at the time. But you can feel that they had the right collaborative spirit. And this anecdote that Shanley tells about the scene that you just referred to in the ovens, where the woman who lets Loretta into the bakery to see Ronnie to try and make the peace between the brothers for the wedding, is revealed in a couple of quick glances to obviously have a massive crush on Ronnie. And Shanley talks about this scene that he actually wrote, which kind of got into that because it was sort of a mirror to the La Boheme theme that runs throughout this film. I thought the way he talked about how it didn't end up in the film was very generous and telling. I was going to have Chrissy be the sort of silhouette of the story of La Boheme, that when somebody gets the guy, somebody loses the guy, that that's part of life. And I was going to, I had written a scene where when they have their big scene, uh, Cher and Nick, and they go upstairs at the end, you know, in the sort of third act of the film or end of the second act, whatever the heck that is, uh, that she appears, and that it's snowing, uh, and that she appears on the street, and she looks up and she sees the lights in his window. And when the light goes out, her heart breaks and she walks away, uh, a lonely figure down the street alone. But I think that Norman just didn't want to do it. And um, I can't blame him. It was a hard shot. It was a hard thing to do. And I, he probably um, rightly intuited that it wasn't about the story, really. It was this filigree. And to me, I like that filigree. But he was trying to strongly tell a strong story simply and not get taken away into side issues. I thought that's such a telling anecdote because I too would like to see that scene. It sounds cinematically beautiful to see her in the snow. Yeah. And you can almost feel the scene as he's describing it. And I think it's sort of telling. And, and Jewison is someone who's so underrated as a film director yeah. that I thought that was a particularly great kudo to Jewison. In the making of featurette, there was a little bit about the meeting of Jewison and Shanley. Yes. Shanley did it on spec. It ended up on Jewison's desk. And I guess it was Shanley who was the one who first suggested, like, maybe we should meet. Mm -hmm. And as Norman Jewison put it, he's like, he wanted to audition me. And yes. Like, and he had to go, he's like... You want to audition me? <laughs> and Norman Jewison had, you know, a enviable career at that point already. Yeah. Then they read through the script together, just the two of them, and they found themselves very much on the same mm -hmm. page. So it's to the credit of a great collaboration of two people finding that they can trust each other's instincts and uh, be going for the same thing. And as Shanley then ended up saying, he's like, he's a believer in, as he put it, separation of powers. Yes. That the writer does what the writer does, the director does what the director does. And so he would concede whatever the, the director thought about the directing. Another great aspect of the film, this movie, they rehearsed everything like a play prior to shooting. And I just can't imagine that isn't why you have what you have here between Nick Cage, Cher, Vincent Gardenia, Olympia Dukakis, Fyodor, who plays the <laughs> grandfather. Jewison starts off the thing with a great quote about Shanley where he's like, if you're from Brooklyn, the Bronx, Puerto Rican, Italian, 
working class doesn't matter. Shanley can write you. Right. I don't know how many of his plays you've seen. or I don't think I've ever seen one so, of the plays. I've seen Doubt, the movie. I saw Doubt. He has sort of a, an unofficial trilogy. Or I guess mm-hmm. maybe it's official because he says it. Doubt. and then You have to called- register trilogies to be official. Well, Tril- ask- the official trilogy registration act. Well, I know Norman Jewison uh, was actually the first one to do that because this is part of a trilogy I know with uh, Rollerball. <laughs> 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 I want to do rollerball. Oh, I mean, love to do is there anything holding ball. us back? <laughs> it's just the will. Why did he direct just rollerball? The will. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Too when looking at his career, he's he's got a very diverse. Said, he has. He is. That's always the mark of the great director. And I was surprised to think of how many things I had seen and mm-hmm. had really enjoyed. Kick some off for us. I haven't seen, but always Fiddler on the fun. Roof. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. About a, an accidental Russian invasion yes. of a small town, I think, in Massachusetts. It's or, kind of like um, Red Dawn. But much gentler. Did Thomas you, Crown Affair, Thomas a Crown soldier's story. I don't know if you've ever seen. Oh, yes. That's also based on, that's that is based one. on a play. And that's that's a wonderful movie. That's a very a good movie. Soldier's story is great. The movie a couple times, and I also saw the play. They had a revival, I think, like five years ago. Of course, The Great Fist. That's one I haven't seen. I think seen. that might be the first Esterhaas. Yes. And I guess there was some dispute over the writing credit, which is, I guess, Between not who? a shock. Between Stallone? Joe Esterhaas and Stallone. Yeah. A rebellious Cleveland warehouse worker rises through the ranks of a trucking industry union to become union president, but his organized crime links cause his eventual downfall. Still, Sylvester Stallone, Rod Steiger, Peter Boyle. That's a good movie. Yeah. That's a fun That's, watch. Oh, you know, it sounds it. <laughs> Anything about unions. Jewison's is just one of those guys. It's like. Agnes he just made a, a variety of different types of movies and usually pretty damn well. Like Don Siegel. Yes. Uh, sort of uh, not showy, yeah. but a consummate craftsman mm-hmm. who's able to do a lot of different things. Dick Hyams did the great music for Moonstruck, which is a really important part of the movie. The way in which both classical pieces and Dick Hyman created music that references classical pieces is used how each character kind of has a theme like an opera. Jewison tells a story about how they filmed the movie, they did the first screening, and the film started with like some type of overture music from La Boheme. Mm -hmm. And audiences just sat there in silence through much of that scene where Loretta is both walking around to her clients and then having dinner with Johnny and gets proposed to. And they didn't know what to do because the music wasn't giving them a cue to what this was. And then Jewison somehow stumbled upon Dean Martin's That's Amore and cut that in and it just, everything clicked. He's like, that song is this movie. Like the strength of the emotions of that scene where he's threatening to kill himself with a knife. There's something about that song that's almost like a caricature of itself. Yes. And yet it's a very sweet sort yes. of moving idea. And it's fun. Like you can't deny how pleasant it is to listen to. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two different guys on a bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. I really loved this moment. The Jewish insights, something Shanley doesn't get a lot of credit for, which is his dark comic timing. This is a scene where such a scenes between actors, the scene after Johnny proposes, he brilliantly tilts the relationship to show us the discomfort both feel about the concept of becoming married. They're at the airport saying goodbye and he goes in to kiss her and then he kind of goes in again and then pulls back. Such a great little 
way to indicate the uncertainty that both feel. Yeah. We come to learn, basically, he's only proposing marriage because he believes his mother's going to die. And somehow that's connected to right. men's grasping at women to prevent yes. death. Then as Cher watches him board his plane, she has this interaction with an old lady dressed all in black. You have someone on that plane? Yeah, my fiance. I put a curse on that plane. My sister is on that plane. I put a curse on that plane that it's going to explode when I'm flying fall into the sea. 50 years ago, she stole a man from me. Sapresi il mio uomo. Today she tells me that she never loved him, that she took him to be strong on me. Oh, she's gone back to Sicily, ritorno in Sicilia. I cursed her that the green Atlantic water should swallow her up. I don't believe in curses. <laughs> Neither do I. It's interesting because it is so Italian, but it's also just sort of any family, mm-hmm. any sort of group, any contained community where you have multi-generations. You have three generations in that house. There's this connection between the young and the old. Cher's character, she, as she says, like, I don't really believe in superstition. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't believe in curses. And yet at the same time, she does describe herself as... Uh, having bad luck in yes. love and is superstitious enough to yes. say like you have to get down on your knees. So it's that that I guess that overlap between the old and the new and how each generation changes, but there's also some continuity in things that can't be let go of. Mm-hmm. Like this <laughs> this woman's anger towards her sister, like the vendetta between <laughs> the two sons, like PS over nothing. Uh it's just it's so I don't know, I guess operatic. Operatic. Have you come to make the peace with me? Like the way they speak of these things is so brilliant. (laughs) What's wrong between us can never be made right. (laughs) It's like, actually, we could. We could sit down and talk it out. Like, I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) Just that's a start. Open your heart to me. Oh, God, it's so good. Speaking of the sort of the oldsters, the uh, that generation, Vincent Gardenia, oh. you know, we last week interviewed Lee Wilkoff, who created the role of Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. Vincent Gardenia was in the movie of Little Shop of Horrors. God, Vinny Gardenia, so good. He's great. So avunc- avuncular comes to in mind. In his first scene where Cher comes home and says, like, you know, Dad, I got to talk to you, and they move into the kitchen. Just watching him get up off oh, the couch mm-hmm. in his robe, we watch him shuffle to the kitchen. Yes. He is so in command of of himself as an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't look, according to his IMDb page, it's not like he was a vaudevillian comedian mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like that. And yet he does have this, mm-hmm. this comedic style you cannot deny. Cher says that's her favorite scene in the whole movie, that kitchen scene between her and Vincent Gardenia, when she comes home and informs both of her parents that she's going to be married, and they both have the same deadpan, droll <laughs> reaction. So what's your news? I'm getting married. Again? Yeah. You did this what before it didn't work out? That the guy died. And what killed him? He got hit by a bus. No, bad luck. Your mother and I were married 52 years. Nobody died. You were married, what, two years? Somebody's dead. Don't get married again, Loretta. It don't work out for you. Who's the man? Johnny Camareri. Johnny Camareri? He's a big baby. And why isn't he here with you telling me this? Because he's flying to Sicily. His mother is dying. More bad luck. I don't like his face, Loretta. I don't like his lips. When he smiles, I can't see his teeth. What does he hide? When are you going to do it? In a month. I won't come. You gotta come. You gotta give me away. I didn't give you away the first time. 
And I had bad luck. You know, maybe if you if you gave me away and I got married in a church, in a wedding dress, instead of down at the city hall with strangers standing outside the door, then maybe I wouldn't have had the bad luck I had. Maybe. You know, Pop, I had no reception, no wedding cake, no nothing. Johnny got down on his knees and proposed to me at the Grand Ticino. He did? Yeah. That don't sound like Johnny. Well... Where's the ring? Here. It looks stupid. It's a pinky ring. It's a baby's. It's a man's ring. It's temporary. Everything is temporary. That don't excuse nothing. You coming? Let's go tell your mother. God, it's so good. Cher says she was a little drunk during the scene. She doesn't drink. They were drinking real champagne. Oh, is that right? Yeah. After the proposal, she stops at a little liquor store, and there's another little moment of the theme here where we have a bickering liquor store couple, and the wife is accusing the man of making eyes at a female customer. Yeah. And they're having a fight the entire time until they have just a quick turn and and gaze at each other lovingly. And she's yeah. buying a little champagne. So Cher said in the filming of this scene, they were drinking real champagne. She's not a drinker. And just because it took a, a bunch of times with the wide shot, the close-ups and all this kind of stuff, she was a little tipsy. And in that scene where she does that little thing where she goes, eh, and she makes a hand gesture, that was just kind of her being drunk. She's described and she's like, they'll cut that out. That wasn't supposed to be in the movie. And then they kept it in. It's so good. <laughs> and Gardenia's like, you're right. He's over the top. He's caricature-esque. You know, he's he's not a gentle, filigreed, like, you know, carved <laughs> yeah, almond on the table. It's not a performance. No. But it's certainly filled with heart. It is and, filled uh, with heart. And vibrant. So the movie's called Moonstruck. We did get rid of the whole wolf. The wolf and thing. The wolf and the bride thing. And what I had forgotten, and when re-watching it, was just how... To me, this this movie seems much more about a family and a group of people as mm-hmm. opposed to the romantic comedy, even though that is the driving force. And there's that scene. There's all this talk about falling in love and the crazy moon. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anybody so in love like Cosmo was back then. He'd stand outside the house all day looking in the windows. I never told you this because it's not really a story. But one time, woke up in the middle of the night because of this bright light in my face, like a flashlight. I couldn't think of what it was. I looked out the window, and it was the moon, as big as a house. I'd never seen the moon so big before or since. I was almost scared, like I was going to crush the house. And I looked down, and standing there in the street was Cosmo, looking up at the windows. This is the funny part. I got mad at you, Cosmo. I thought you had brought that big moon over to my house because you were so in love and woke me up with it. I was half asleep, I guess. I didn't know any better. You were altogether asleep. You were dreaming. No. You were there. And then there's a scene where everybody, most of the cast, you see them all looking out Mm -hmm. at the same moon. And that scene really staked it in the ground in a thematic way as being about people's strong emotions leading them to potentially do things that can go wrong and how you have to forgive yourself and each other in the same, you know, because when you were talking about the liquor store couple, the two of them are very angry at each other, but there's a very quick turn. Uh, Cher and Nicolas Cage's relationship is based on a kind of betrayal of Mm -hmm. uh, both of them doing something that they know that they shouldn't do. Sure. That sort of messiness of it 
it's the moon and the sort of romance of it and that mm-hmm. being up there that makes everybody do things that they shouldn't. And yet that's what life is all about. This is the Nick Cage share scene after the opera, which is really the thematic statement of the entire film, yes. which is Nick Cage's character pleading with Loretta to come inside. She's promised to go to the opera with him and that's it. And then they're supposed to go back to their regular lives and she's going to marry Johnny and everything's going to be the way it was. But that crazy moon. Loretta, I love you. Not not like they told you love is. And I didn't know this either. But love don't make things nice. It ruins everything. It breaks your heart. It makes things a mess. We, we aren't here to make things perfect. Snowflakes are perfect. The stars are perfect. Not us. Not us. We are here to ruin ourselves and and to break our hearts and love the wrong people and and die. I mean that the storybooks are bullshit. Now I want you to come upstairs with me and and get in my bed. Come on. But that's a great monologue, and that's kind of the thesis of the whole movie. Yeah. Film 30 Below uh, on the streets of Brooklyn. Cher said when she has tears there, they're just tears of, of like desperation. <laughs> and she was so cold. One of the great things about Cher on the commentary track, she many times is like, oh God, I was so cranky during this. I was so unhappy. I was giving everyone such a hard time. It was December. Uh-huh. You know, out in the area of Brooklyn where they're filming, the Sackett, Hicks, Columbia area. Yep. There is a wind that comes off the water there that will chill you to your bones. You can see in that scene their breath coming out of their mouths. She looks uncomfortable and bound up. Yeah. She's wearing like multiple long underwear. There's also the um, Julie Bavasso. And what's the name of the actor who plays her? Her husband. Her husband. Louis Gus. The uh, Capamages. Yeah, he's so sweet and... Uh, He's like got a great face. He's got a great face. And they have this this lovely scene again, looking up at the same moon on this same night. I don't know. That's the one scene in the movie that for me didn't quite work as much. I guess I would put that Cosmos Moon story in the same category as Shanley was putting the La Boheme reference uh-huh. of the bakery worker. I know it's like that's the theme of the whole movie, the moon being moonstruck. That section of the movie for me was the only place that didn't feel like it really worked. Yeah. The part um, you loved the most. I really did love it. And I think part of it is also because it did give Raymond and- It did give them something to do. You get to see them. And I think yes. it's also very sweet. Uh, this isn't a porn fetish or anything like that. I thought it was very sweet to see them like love each other. And I think she has this beautiful line where she's like, you know, standing there looking at the moon. You look like you're 25, you be 25 years, years old. old. And then he, yeah. And then she's he like, starts what are you doing? Eyes. Get away. What are you doing? I yeah, it's great. It she's sweet. a great, she played Travolta's mom in Saturday Night Fever and actually was an acting teacher and a dialogue coach. And that's how she came to help Cher because she had the accent naturally. Yeah. She recorded all of Cher's dialogue so that Cher could listen to it and get the rhythm of the speech. Before I realized that she was also the mother, I was thinking a lot about Saturday Night Fever, specifically about the scenes where the whole family would be around the table. Mm-hmm. In both cases, they did have that rhythm and that overlap and, and how funny they were, as well as mm-hmm. tense. Uh, Julie Bavasso also is great in Sidney Lumet's The Verdict, one of my all-time favorite films. Uh-huh. She plays a very critical role as a nurse in that, that sort of helps unfold the mystery that we're following of the medical case that's at the heart of it. And Sidney Lumet called her one of the best actresses we've ever had in this country. 
That's wow. pretty high praise. That is pretty high praise. And he, uh, he, would know. he would know. There's a scene where Cher comes home after her first romantic encounter with Ronnie. She pours herself a glass of wine. And there's just a scene where she walks from the living room to the kitchen and her nails are clicking on the wine glass. When Vincent Gardenia is introduced with his mistress, it's shot where he's recounting a funny plumbing story of a yuppie couple he's just fleeced. And we don't see the mistress first the way it's shot. He's at a table telling the story. And then all of a sudden we see him with a woman we now know not to be his wife. And before she says anything, she's showing a little too much cleavage. She's got these red, red nails. And he gives her a bracelet that has stars and moons on it. He makes her a little romantic speech about birds and stars. But after he does that, the camera lingers on him and he picks his ear. <laughs> Such a little thing. Yeah. I think it's the kind of thing you can imagine coming up in that two-week rehearsal process of really going through every scene and the minutia of every scene so that the performance, like opening night, was the filming. You know, I sort of had forgotten about that subplot and the fact that they would run into at the opera. Yes. Uh, but w when you mentioned that, you know, when you first see, I forget what the character's name is of the mistress, uh, Mona, I think. Probably. Or am I just... <laughs> You're just making that Yeah, up. Mona. No, hey, right. you got it right. When you see her... Anita like Gillette. She's got this red hair. She's yeah. wear uh, these bright nails and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when they are at the opera, she says something like, you haven't complimented my, bre my breasts. Breasts. Whoa. Uh, Paging Dr. Freud, Chris. She goes, you haven't complimented my dress. And he goes, it's so bright. <laughs> like, that's, that's his compliment. That's men coming up with compliments. But it makes me think, is you, she is so, like, redheaded and sort of flamboyant yes. compared to Olympia Dukakis' yes. character. And compared to their whole life. Like, it does seem mm -hmm. that they're for all that we're talking about the passion and stuff, mm -hmm. like it's pretty drab. I wonder, does that parallel the uh, trying to avoid death that Vincent Gardinia is doing by chasing this other woman mm -hmm. by going for brightness and sure. life that he doesn't have in his uh, in his regular day-to-day -day life? This is also, I think, one of John Mahoney's first films, according to Norman Jewison. Uh -huh. He had seen John Mahoney and Danny Aiello in House of Blue Leaves together. Yes. And that's how they both ended up being cast in the movie. And John Mahoney is based on a actual, I believe, NYU professor that John Patrick Shanley knew who did what the John, John Mahoney character is doing, which is he has a speech where like he's this jaded, bored professor and he's listening to himself go on and on in a monotone. But every so often, a shining, beautiful female face will be gazing at him. And for her, it's all new. And she thinks he's this dashing, interesting guy talking about philosophy or whatever. And it takes her some time to figure out it's all just an act. Yeah. And he is such an interesting actor who is kind of an everyman in so many ways. Like there's nothing really, he's not particularly handsome. He's he's not particularly unique, but he's had this incredible career because he's a reliable underplayer, I mm -hmm. think, in everything that he's been in. Working actor, yeah. Chicago guy, been in everything forever. And he has a great scene with Olympia Dukakis in the restaurant where he's had yet another young thing throw throw wine or water in his face. Yep. Olympia Dukakis is out eating by herself after she's learned her husband's having an affair. I love that scene because you have every member of the family doing something potentially wrong, though mm -hmm. she does not transgress. And it's and it's very sweet for his character to find himself attracted to literally the exact opposite of yes. what he had been talking about. You know, it's, it's that sort of change, finding something more real than just the mm -hmm. sort of... Um, 
the sweetness of somebody looking up to him, but somebody who has more substance. wisdom and substance. Yeah. She's so grounded and has her own story, even though it's not put forth in speeches. She's not just the forgotten wife, even though she is in the mechanism of the story, mm-hmm. right? But in that, she's also the only one who kind of speaks the truth about what's going on in everyone else's situation in the scene that follows the kitchen scene where they wake her up and uh, she says, do you love him? And Cher says, no. And she goes, good, because when you love him, they drive you crazy because they know they can. And she obviously loves her husband and he obviously loves her. Yeah. And she's wise enough to know he's coming back. And she underplays yeah. all of it. Every scene, you know, and again, this is because you can't see it. There's so much besides what she says, this sort of, to call it a twitch would be would be a disservice. But like all of the sort of things she does with her face that belies mm-hmm. the, the tone of voice. Yes. You can see, like you said, that she really does, even when she's hurting, she does love her husband. Yes. Even when she is counseling her mm-hmm. daughter to play it safe and yeah. not go for somebody who loves her, part of her doesn't want to take that advice. It's an amazing performance. And I remember when this movie came out, all the talk I remember being about her Mm -hmm. and about how amazing her performance was. Like you said, it's one of many. It is not the driving force and there's not any showy scenes. And yet she is so grounded and so real and and, um, brings so much to it. Jewison said that Olympia Dukakis had the greatest comic timing of any actor he'd worked with. You kind of have to play the snap out of it scene too. (laughs) Just because that's, I think, the scene people think about. Yes. This is after their tryst. Is this the first tryst? Or is this the post? Yeah, first tryst. Yeah, first tryst. What did you do? What did I do? You ruined my life. That's impossible. It was ruined when I got here. You ruined my life. No, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. You know, you got the bad eyes like a gypsy, and I don't know why I didn't see it yesterday. Bad luck. That's it. Is that all I'm ever going to have? Oh, I should have taken a rock and killed myself years ago. I'm going to marry him. Do you hear me? Last night never happened, and I'm going to marry him, and you and I are going to take this to our coffins. I can't do that. Why not? I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I can't. So I guess Jewison said people for years continue to come up to him and do that scene. Yeah. Snap out of it. (laughs) Please just don't slap me. (laughs) It's also a scene he cites as a particular example of how brilliant the cinematography was in the film and how highly he speaks of the cinematographer because it is a romantic comedy. And obviously that's not a genre that we associate with brilliant filmmaking, let's Mm -hmm. say. But David Watkin, who's just one of those extremely pro, incredibly influential cinematographers who's Work you know, even if you don't know it. Chariots of Fire, he shot Out of Africa. The ones that you've um, been citing are all so big. They're so big, yes. And yet this is mostly in small apartments and enclosed spaces. Jewison said he wanted it to look like a French film in the sense that there's natural lighting Mm -hmm. and the way that it's lit is unobtrusive, but really does help with where we're going. Mm -hmm. I love the scene at the end where Cher comes back after the opera night. It's after the speech that we just saw Nick Cage give a little bit ago. There's a great scene where Cher is kicking the can down the street as she walks home, just obviously carried away in love. She's still in her gorgeous nightgown or, you know, dress dress from the, from from the, the, the juxtaposition of her just kicking this can and the way she's dressed. Like that's the kind of thing that you could see that written on a page in a description, but with Cher and just what she's able to do, 
She has an awareness of her face mm-hmm. and her body in the frame that is so specific. Another great example for me was when she comes out of the Cinderella Beauty Salon. Mm-hmm. She's made up. We have that quick reveal where you see the glossy red lips and the hair, and she looks like Cher again. She does this thing where she just looks left and right with her eyes, and then she bites her lip a little bit in uncertainty. The lip bite in that scene is so share. Yeah. It just tells us everything we need to know. She's not comfortable in this guise that the conventions of the movie want us to see her in. Oh, and that's what elevates it above yes. uh, conventional romantic comedy by adding that uncertainty. It's not that the makeover is its own achievement. There's still uncertainty that it's something that she still has to actively inhabit. At the end of the film, Sharon and Nick Cage are together. They're at the dinner table. Olympia Dukakis knows that Vinnie Gardini is having the affair. Pop with the dogs has seen Olympia with John Mahoney and chose to walk by and not acknowledge her. He believes she's having an affair. We know she's not. Right. Danny Aiello, his impending arrival keeps getting interrupted as the aunt and uncle arrive. But basically, once Johnny Camerary, Danny Aiello, arrives, Olympia Dukakis does this brilliant thing. The first time she answers the door, it's Ronnie. Mm -hmm. And as she turns to walk back, there's just a little look on her face, which is so specifically brilliant. And when Danny Aiello shows up, she does it again. And it's like there's a mirthful glee that the shit is about to jump off. The final scene takes place in the kitchen. You have eight people in the kitchen. They're all around a table. Danny Aiello arrives. And when you watch it, it's very seamless. And it doesn't strike you as a difficult scene. Right. What's great, actually, about the fact that Cher, Shanley, and Jewison worked together for the recording of the track is you get to hear them each tell their version of what they think happened on the set that day. For Jewison, it was this kind of horrible, dawning, empty pit in stomach awareness that this is really fucking hard to do yeah. because the intercutting, a lot of the commentary and comedy comes from who we're cutting away to and what they're doing when we cut away to them. But the dialogue on the page, he says, he knew was so specific that how they shot this was going to, if this doesn't work, the entire movie falls apart. And I think crucially, they also left this for last. And you also have eight or nine actors who have different styles and ways of working. Jewison says they started at nine in the morning and they were just running through it. Until lunchtime, like at noon at 1230, Cher said something like, aren't we going to break for lunch? Mm-hmm. Because they just been, they'd been doing it and doing it and doing it and not running the cameras. Right. Just rehearsing. Right. And Jewison famously said, I'll feed you when you get it right. And he meant there's a meal penalty if you work through the SAG approved right. schedule, but film directors can do it and they can just pay a penalty. He didn't mean it disparagingly. He just right. said, we're getting momentum here. Let's get let's get it right. And then we can have lunch. Cher took it to mean, you're my prisoner until you do this right. Right. Julie Bavasso had a very different process, let's say, than Nick Cage. And she was kind of goading him a little. He didn't even want to be in the scene, number one. Uh He said, I don't think I should be in this. Maybe because he kind of knew this was going to be a clusterfuck. And he kind of tried to remove his character from it so he wouldn't have to deal with it. I don't know. Whatever happened between Julie Bavasso and Nick Cage isn't really explicated except that she probably gave him a little version of now, now, dear boy. 
Uh-huh. And he became so enraged that he threw a chair across the room. So that's where the chair comes in. And, and Cher says at that moment, Julie Bavasso caught her eye and winked at her <laughs> because he doesn't really have a lot of dialogue in the scene. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. does have to be suitably worked up. And there's got to be a lot of emotion between both he and Cher. And so maybe that was part of the process. But at the end of the day, they were able to pull off what I think is probably one of the greatest scenes in the movie and includes that great rapprochement between Olympia and Vincent Gardini. Have I been a good wife? Yeah. I want you to stop seeing her. A man understands one day that his life is built on nothing. And that's a bad, crazy day. <laughs> Your life is not built on nothing. Uh, te amo. Olympia Dukakis, God, what an actor. Yeah. That combination of the steely exterior and the obviously hurt emotion going on underneath that. I also love the way Nick Cage just looks at Cher and has a little smile the way you do when you're in love with someone and just seeing them makes your face light up. And that's not even getting into all the stuff that then happens when- Right, when everybody when, else when comes everyone in. When everyone else comes in. It's, and it's really a brilliant movie. Yeah. Loved it. I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I, I, I don't know what I was thinking of going into it. Like, yeah. I remember certainly liking it and it's all well and good, but sort of like Terms of Endearment. Yeah. And, you know, from a similar time and I think a similar kind of adult oriented, mm -hmm. not that it's dirty or anything like yes. that, but these are complicated emotions yeah. that they're mining for comedy. But in both cases, I thought it just such wonderful uh, humanistic movies. And Danny Aiello, when he goes to Sicily to visit his supposedly dying mother. <laughs> oh my God, those scenes are hilarious. Cher has a great throwaway line. She talks to Johnny on the phone from Sicily and there's just this great scene of the mother in this bed and she's obviously not dying and Johnny's Well, she just, is surrounded by, I think she's surrounded by nuns. nuns? Yeah. yeah. She's surrounded by nuns. <laughs> but she's fine. And, and Olympia asks Cher, well, what about the mother? She says, She's dying, but I could hear her big mouth. I mean, it's just such a lack of sentimentality that's so great. Yeah. And the way Aiello guilelessly delivers the, the line at the end in the dinner scene where everyone's like, what happened? I thought she was dying. And he's like, it's a miracle. I told her we were going to be married. And she she came back to life. <laughs> he doesn't get what's going on. Uh, a little bit of alternative casting. Put that one back. There's not that much, but a few fun facts. John Patrick Shanley, when he wrote the role, do you know what actress he had in mind? For the share role? No, I don't. He wrote the role with Sally Field in mind. That, Chris, 
think about that on so many levels. That's, <laughs> Why that's, are you blaming me? I'm not blaming you. I just that's the type of thing I think you find on the internet and you immediately dismiss as something completely oh, I don't know. unfounded. I mean, look, I listened to the entire commentary track. Yes. I watched the entire making of featurette. I didn't read that he had her in mind. I mean, I can't imagine Sally Field as an Italian-American accountant from Brooklyn. So I def- I refute and defute that. Maybe defute since that's not a real word. But I mean, look, like I said, it's it's here on the on the it's IMDb on the inter- page. Are you saying and it's on the whether, internet? So therefore, it's true. But specifically on on you know uh, the, the IMDb. IMDb. I mean, I mean they, they wouldn't have. But any what false I was going to say is, it, you know, it also it says just that. Now he might have been like, this is who I cast in my head, mm-hmm. as opposed to thinking this is who would act. You know okay. what I mean? But I what thought else that, that was a funny surprise. Uh, for the Olympia Dukakis role, mm-hmm. I saw two names, Anne Bancroft and Maureen Stapleton both pass, rather, excuse me, were both too expensive. Ah, uh, I could see that. And I think it did come up in, in other places that I read that, you know, Olympia Dukakis was not such a big name. This was a mm-hmm. huge game changer for her sure. life. Now, and the only other real alternative casting, the question of who was it who did that second screen test mm. along with Cher? Do you know? I do. Excellent. Again, you know, I don't know. I'm, on the internet. I'm excited to hear. Peter Gallagher. Ah, I could see that. In reading about this. It, it was probably kind of a starish at the time. Like Nicolas Cage. You know, they're both on their way up. Yeah. A similar. Similar brooding. Similar age brooding thing. And yeah. career could have gone in different ways. You know, funny. I forwarded you that New York Times article yes. this week. At the same time, I was also reading an L.A. Times interview with Nicolas Cage from 1988. Uh-huh. Like just after it had come yeah. out. And, you know, he's. He's batshit in both, but it was funny to see the sort of contrast because the writer is writing about it like, who knows who this Nicolas Cage could be? You know, <laughs> I mean, he, you know, here's this guy. He's a really good actor. What's he going to go on to do? Who knows? <laughs> uh, but so too, so it was apparently Peter Gallagher and the studio really, really liked wanted him, him and really kept pushing for it. And it was, it was Cher, yeah. I guess her argument was that he could definitely do the crazy part more realistically than Peter Gallagher could and who can argue with that. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Are you ready to do headlines? Yes. Headlines. This one just made me laugh out loud. Beverly Hills 90210 is needlessly complicated. (laughs) So, you know, they're making a reboot of Beverly Hills 90210, brilliantly titled BH 90210. Right, because who has time to say the whole word? Words hard. This is a review. Fox's needlessly complicated reboot squanders a golden opportunity to which I only have to add, none of those words above can possibly be true. <laughs> the needless complication is that it's set kind of in an alternative world where like they're kind of playing themselves as actors who were on the show. Oh. And now this is their life now. But it just puts this other weird layer over it. No, that sort that, of that sounds like, That's appropriately complicated. My second headline is a little bit of kind of like how we're living in RoboCop, how we're living in the dystopian future predicted by so many of the films we've talked about here on the podcast. Denise Richards, the former ex-wife of Charlie Sheen, turned, I think, current ex-wife, current ex-wife, turned Real Housewives cast member, apparently. 
Her life was saved by viewers noting that she had an enlarged thyroid on a uh, sorry. That's the oh. <laughs> that. Uh, where's my mute button? Sorry. Oh, I've been I've been looking for your mute button for a good year now. Tee that one up for you. Uh, anyway, they had a uh, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills reunion. Several viewers noticed a lump on her neck, and turns out they were right. Wow! It was a cancerous thyroid nodule. This is the third time in entertainment recent history this has occurred. It also occurred to Deborah Norville's neck on Inside Edition. And then in 2015, Tarek El Musa of HGTV's huge hit show Flipper Flop was also alerted by a viewer that his thyroid was enlarged. So I like to think of viewers diagnosing celebrities on television shows as like a leading indicator for the type of world we live in. Hey, listen, we all have to watch out for each other. We That's do. what it is. So <laughs> think of it as communitarian. People are concerned about other people's well-being. Anyway, those are my headlines. Yeah, well, that's great. Do you have any rants or oh, raves? I have a rant. I've been stewing about this since last night. I'm oh so angry. I cannot wait for this to fail. I I think it is unnecessary. I I I just I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm angry for everyone involved. You may have oh. been watching American Crime Story. Ryan Murphy uh -huh. FX. Yeah, yeah, right. It's famously an anthology series. They did OJ. Now you know what they're doing next? And you know who's a fucking executive producer of it of the her own story? They're doing impeachment produced by Monica Lewinsky. It's a retelling of the Clinton presidency scandal with Monica Lewinsky on board to produce, to which I just say, Chris, we do not need this story told again. I am sick of it. I am sick of the Clintons. I am sick of the scandal. I don't want to immerse myself in this ever again. I don't want to see Linda Tripp played by Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson. I don't want to see Beanie Feldstein playing Lewinsky. I don't want to see this. Nobody needs this. Okay. Okay. I'll, and also this like. I'll tell them. <laughs> this embracement, this embracing that Murphy is doing of Monica. I told her, said Murphy, nobody should tell your story but you. And it's kind of gross if they do. If you want to produce it with me, I would love that. But you should be the producer and you should make all the goddamn money. Um, I mean, I think she. Why know. is this a necessary story? Well, I think what a lot the fuck of has left on probably what's left and what people think is important because they they did do a podcast about it on um, what was it Slow Burn season two, and I thought it was very interesting because it put into context the uh, kind of abusive power relationship in a post Me Too era. Like, I think looking at it through that point of view, I don't know the way you just looked at it through that lens. That's as much. That's as much as we need to. Yeah. Abuse yeah. of power. I don't need a goddamn miniseries on FX to present Monica Lewinsky to me as some hero. This is going to be a romanticization of her side of the story. Maybe it'll yeah, be proof. I mean, no, I'm, I'm just trying to think. Of, I don't know how you could romanticize it. I mean, she's for the past what, I guess. Do you remember when she did that famous TED Talk a few years yes, ago about her life getting? I've seen that. I've seen the dramatic black and white photos in Vanity Fair. I've seen the posing in the luxury gowns. I've seen the... It's just gross. I mean, look, I understand you were a young kid and you had your head turned by the president who who did prey upon you in use of the power dynamic. You know, it changed the course of her life, you know, for a long time. I mean, I think that's what the talk was about, was how being in it's like Sam Jones in Flash Gordon. Just because this circumstance occurred to you, it doesn't mean you have a license to be present on the public stage for the rest of your life. Got it. Well, uh. 
but you'll be watching. Something necessary. Uh, who knows? The opposite is a rave. Have you seen? And this is a very appropriate rave considering the movie that we did. Have you seen The Farewell? No. The Farewell, for people who don't know, stars uh, Queen's rapper turned actress Aquafina. It's by a oh, woman yes. named Lulu Wang. It's about. I've heard it's charming and hilarious and moving and, and great. Yeah. Yeah, I particularly like movies where you have you have a very specific cultural viewpoint which points out, in fact, the universality of yes. a lot of these feelings. And it does it really, really well. And there's, like this movie, it's not just the lead role, but the, mm -hmm. the family around is so well cast and it's so funny and so well observed. I really- I, I will watch it. it. It's that great. sounds good. And Chris, have you made any selections for Latchkey TV quickly? For Latchkey TV. Well- Hello? Who do you got on the cover? We've we've got John mm. Ritter holding a dog in Seattle. Is Seattle? No, San Francisco. San Francisco. Right? That's the whatever tower. What is the name of the TV show that he had been a cop? Three's on? Company. Uh, no, it turns out that it was he did work <laughs> after Three's Company. Something called Hooperman, which huh. uh, I don't know about. On this day in 1980, uh, what's what's the exact date? Um. Well, on this day, I would come home at 3 p.m. And uh, ooh, I think I would probably watch Beverly Hills Teen on Cartoon. Beverly a Hills cartoon. Teen? Never heard of it. That sounds, sounds dirty. That might be kind of fun. Oh, could be. And especially a dirty cartoon. Those teens in cartoon. Beverly Hills move fast. Well, it's, it's wish fulfillment. Uh, but then at 3.30, I'd probably have had my fill of, you know, of how one half lives. And I'd check out how the other half lives by watching truck and tractor pulling Ooh, on, I one. think that's ESPN or competition in the All-American Pulling Series taped at Syracuse, New York. Interesting. My money is on Tractors? the tractor. Yeah. <laughs> God, that's really the glory days of television when you had that kind of shit <laughs> filling up the airwaves. And that was there, like so much better than now. So much better. Where now you have infinite choices. If you yeah. look, you'll find something. But here, when you have only a few, to settle on tractor pulling, you'd be like, well, "All right, let me watch this for twenty minutes." At what is it? At four o'clock, I think I'd watch the after-school special. Ooh, because What's the topic? Uh, as a you know, as a kid, you know, I wanted to pretend my life was more important than it was. In this drama, Tempest Bledsoe mm. and Della Reese are in The Gift of Amazing Grace, about a teenager who's the only member of a family of gospel performers who can't sing. <laughs> so that's tough. There's sort of um, wow. an ugly duckling or um, what's... <laughs> are the stakes high enough in that setup? Uh, so, okay, being an accountant. I mean, it's, it's, there are plenty of <laughs> careers open to you. Well, when that is done, because of this cover, I'm on a... Um, you're on a John Ritter? John Ritter. Terror. So on channel two, I'm going to switch right over at 4.30 to Three's Company. Although I would be a little disappointed to find out this is the conclusion of two -parter. a two-parter. Mm. Jack has wedding plans. Wow. But Vicky, Mary Cataretti, Cataret, declines and suggests instead that they live together. Mm. And this episode does, Such does a two have parts? John Ritter. It's the conclusion. Wow. I bet you John Ritter directed that. <laughs> Right, He's late like, in the run. I wanted to go deeper. It's a two-parter. I, I really need to get into the backstory here. Yeah. Did you ever watch Three's a Crowd? The no. Live, Is that a spinoff uh, of spin Three's? Yeah. Where no. Jack does marry somebody, and it's he, him, and her, and then her dad. I guess either ah. lives with them, or he just makes himself a pest. Interesting. A lot. Who was that actor? It's definitely a that guy. Uh, Dabney Coleman. No. Um, Carol O'Connor. No, but but that's close. Sherman Helmsley? Uh, starring John Ritter. Uh, oh, and it does star Mary Cataret. So I guess this is 
Probably. He did marry Vicky. He did marry this yeah. Vicky. Uh, and But I believe it was oh, Robert Mandin. Oh. <laughs> so close. But Robert Mandin. I never heard of Robert Mandin. But if you look at his face, you know, he's that guy. You've seen him. Robert Mandin. Yes. I've Mandin. never seen this person before You're in my life. You're kidding. I mean, really? you? Yes. I mean, I don't know where. Was he on soap? He was. Why yes, is he? He, he was, was on, on Man soap. From That's what I remember him from. Well, one way or the other, the pinnacle of his career was Three's a Crowd. Which I guess spun off directly from this episode. Hmm. So I'm glad I caught it. At 5 p.m. Well, it's a tough call. I think I might watch Quincy just because. Ooh, yeah. Love Quincy. What's I mean, the, it's uh, a little bit dark. What's the apparent- M.E.'s M.O.? Actual, please use the official title. Quincy M.E. is the title of the Forgive show. Forgive me. Uh, you What's should write M-E's back in time M-O? to TV Guide. Why, they, don't put, just, they just put Quincy? Just Quincy. Crime drama. Mm. 60 Minute. An apparent suicide leads Quincy. Jack, Jack Lugman. Lugman. Hello. They really put that in parentheses? Yeah. Into the world of Come child pornography. Guy. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'd be, I'd, I might not make it all the way through the episode. I the might things be Jack Plugman can't unsee. Yeah. Well, at 530, on different strokes, Ray Bolger appears as Whoa. the legendary ghost of a neighborhood mansion. Wow. Wait, what? Ghost of a mansion. Who frightens Arnold and Sam. You Gary know. Coleman and Danny. What year, what, what year is this? The writing in TV Guide really went downhill. 87. The copywriting. Really was started to get amateurish. I think, you know, as they added more channels, they had less space. They had less time. Yeah. Yeah. Appears as the legendary ghost of a neighborhood mansion. Mm. That sounds exciting. And I like that sort of genre crossing. I love love an old performer's star turn on a beloved sitcom. Yes. Well, then my dad would probably yell at me and we'd have dinner. uh, And then. Now, you grew up in an ethnic family. Much yeah. like the Castorinis. Yes. Uh, did you do the polls? Are the polls an effusive dinner table culture or more silent and brooding and sort of like thudding your axe and snow boots on the yeah. table? <laughs> it's a, it would really depend on the day. Yeah. But there was definitely a lot of both. Yeah. Uh, but yes. I mean, the I, poll, are the polls a inward people or a no, they're, outward they're, expressive they're outward, people? Yes. Okay. They're an outward expressive people. My father being an engineer sort of bucks that trend. Mm-hmm. So you do have a little bit of dramatic contrast there. But that's why he's Something like both The Farewell and this, these ethnic comedies, they always feel very, because once you get down to it, a first generation family, they all look pretty much the same. Sure. uh, In terms of, yes, the old world relatives, you got the parents, you got the kids who are modern. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. But then after dinner, I would probably watch, I don't know how well it ages because I'm watching a while, but uh, at 8 p.m., I'd probably watch Family Ties. Because I do remember liking Loved that show a lot. Family Ties. I think I've spoken before about my desire to live within the world yes. of Family Ties as a wholesome familial unit that I didn't really have at the time. Yes. I would have loved to have Meredith Baxter Bernie make me breakfast. Yeah. And to be able to sit down and have and a talk with dad. I was about to say, get some good advice from Great bearded advice. old hippie. Well, this episode, in a first run episode from 1983. So wow. that's a nice way of saying rerun. Yeah. Stephen and Elisa's bickering while planning their 20th anniversary party may nix the celebration. Mm, been Stephen, there. Michael Gross, Elise, Meredith Baxter-Bernie, Alex, who hadn't been mentioned, Michael J. Fox. Great. The big star. We should do a Michael J. Fox movie. One point you had suggested The Frighteners, and I would yeah. love to do that. It's so weird. And people love it. There's a Frighteners community that's very strong and scary. Are there weird movies that don't have loyal cult fan. I mean, I'm sure there are things that are so yeah. crappy, but I think a lot, you know, Frighteners was, I remember, a big flop because mm-hmm. yes. everybody was confused. They didn't get anything yeah. they wanted. But like that, as we found with Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon, by the way, it continues to go gangbusters as a podcast, which, by the way, I'm glad you referenced this because I was just laughing about this this morning. I was checking the, the socials and the Facebook yeah. page and looking at the downloads. 
Flash Gordon has taken off as an episode. It has a life unto itself outside the podcast. If you're one of those few people who haven't listened to it, please go get it. Yeah. However, you know what I noticed, Chris? Every single comment is from a man. Oh, yeah? I don't think there's one female fan of Flash Gordon. If I'm wrong, forgive yeah. me. At us. But at us, gang. But I did not. If you look at all the comments, all the defenses of the movie <laughs> are from guys. Oh, and then I think I would watch because this is a great show that does hold up. And every time I get a chance, I really do love to watch The Muppet Show. Oh, great. Does it tell you who the guest stars are? I hope. Fozzie Bear takes the Muppet Gang to his mother's farm for Christmas Eve celebration of song, laughter, and good cheer. So I guess this is a Christmas special. There they receive a visit from the Sesame Street... Oh, (laughs) I thought it was going to be a ghost. Sorry. (laughs) There they receive a visit from the Sesame Street regulars. Kermit's nephew Robin discovers a fraggle hole in the basement, and the Swedish chef cooks up a big plan for Big Bird, which does make it sound like the Swedish chef is going to kill Big Bird. Cook and kill Big Bird. (laughs) Little gamey. He tries to tell everybody, like, you've eaten your best friend. Hoogie hoogin. But they don't understand, so they don't realize yeah. the uh, Greek tragedy they've just been plunged into. Uh, amid all the Muppet mayhem, Kermit has his own worries. Miss Piggy is still en route, somewhere in the middle of the worst blizzard in 50 years. Wow. wow. No guest stars? I guess not. Huh. I mean, unless you count the uh, the the Sesame Street. Yeah, but you know what? I think it's sometimes with shows you get to the point where you're like, you know what? Enough with the guest stars. Let's just (laughs) let's just do it with us. By now, Kermit is popular enough. You know, we don't we don't need need how trot out Wallace Beery. We don't need Sylvester Stallone to wrestle (laughs) a lion and sing anything you can do. I can do better. Oh, by the way, I wrote that. Ooh, and then at 8.05, because we are in the Christmas season, mm-hmm. and after the Muppets, I'd probably be so keyed Christmas'd up. up. Yeah, no. keyed up. I would watch easily the best Christmas movie ever made. Uh, a Christmas Story? A Christmas Story. Of at 8.05 on TBS, which I think probably in the 80s, like really- Can I tell you something? Made its-, made its uh, Never saw it. Well, that's The best bad. Christmas movie that ever made. Too- yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. What, 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 Krampus is better? <laughs> um, I have to admit, I, yeah, I don't like holiday themed stuff for the most part. I find Christmas stories so funny. Right, well, why don't we do so it for Christmas written. this year? Great. It just seems so treacly and stupid. It's not, it's, like it's not treacly. Really? Yeah. But it's like Americana, apple pie, leaving your kids home alone, right? <laughs> I mean, no. Is this one with Joe Pesci trying home? to break into the house? Is that no, a Christmas story? That's Home Alone. This is the one where the kid has the BB that's gun. That's Home Alone. This is the one the where the kid has the, the BB gun and the, and the glasses and the kid in the snowsuit that can't move his arms. Uh, and All right, Chris. After... It's 2.40. Are we done here? Oh, please. I thought we were done like an hour ago. <laughs> uh, you I, can cut out all that. Like you cut out my brilliant pay-on <laughs> to fucking Lindsay Mark Buckingham. Lindsay Buckingham. Trouble. That, I'm, I'm mad about that, Chris. You really couldn't tell that I was passionate side. about that when I was talking about it, that you I know, loved it? It was, and if it's something I love, maybe you could just say, hey, man, just want to give you a heads up. I know you loved the Lindsey Buckingham trouble thing, but it wasn't really on point with the conversation about National Lampoon's Vacation, which, by the way, it was since he wrote the theme song that we were talking about. Right. And it was simply an aside to another piece of genius from the same artist, which really wouldn't have taken much running time in an episode that was already pretty short. Don't you was think it pretty short? Just, couldn't you just have said, hey, I, what do you think about taking that out? Maybe, uh, and we never would have done this, but I would have bought it. You would have said, maybe we'll release it as a extra. <laughs> 
And I'll say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah and then it never would happen. That's no, how like, you handle me. You, okay? I, don't just no, cut honestly, it. I and then I'm not. listening. I'm like, oh, my God. I can't wait. I'm going to hear trouble. And then it's going to be so exciting. <laughs> oh, trust me. I, you know, I, I rarely regret any no, of the No, you cuts. don't regret it. I do. Are no, you, you kidding? Don't. No, no, you don't regret this, it. This passion that you have just shown. But I had the passion in the moment. I don't know. You go back and listen. Well, I'd say go back and listen to me. I can't. <laughs> I only have you to rely upon for whether it was passion or not. Didn't seem that passionate. All right. Was I like, oh yeah, I like that song. Yeah, I thought I, like I, went, into, I thought I went into a whole thing about like asking Matt to tell me about why it's so good. And no, you said that about uh, 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 whatever holiday the vacations road. about Holiday Road. You you said you I would like to live in that song, knives, and I Chris. said really. And then you moved on to the next thing. <laughs> like I said, I regret it now. I do. I absolutely do. And you hurt me. Which I and I'm not Italian, so I don't express myself. <laughs> you seem to be doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> All right, please. Can we wrap this right, up? Let's My wrap God. this up. Yes, I, and then I go to bed. So until next week, keep your head up, feel your feels, and keep on going wherever it is you're going. You coming with me or what? This girl, she didn't know where she was going or what she was gonna do. She didn't have no money on her. Maybe she'd meet up with a character. I was hoping things would work out for her. She was a good friend of mine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Full Cast and Crew. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, drop us a line. You can email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at at FullCastingCrew, or on Instagram at FullCastingCrew, or of course, find the podcast on Facebook. And if you really, really enjoyed it, take a screenshot of your favorite episode on your podcast player and forward it to a friend so they can subscribe and figure out what you're always laughing about. And if you didn't enjoy it, I don't know, drop us a line anyway. I can take it.